But maybe what you want for Christmas is a new mic pack for the church. That would be nice. <laughs> Send in those offerings. Just kidding. Um, you know, maybe you are asking that question, though. What do you want for Christmas? Maybe you have kids at home, or maybe you have kids far away, or maybe you have friends who you're asking this question to, or maybe friends are asking you this question, and you're just hoping it's not socks again compared to last year or something like that, or maybe you are hoping for socks. There's a good chance you're asking some of those questions on what do you want for Christmas. And when my kids were little, and if you have little kids, maybe you're used to this too, is like, you know, they'd write a letter to Santa or something like that. And it would be like, that was your, your trick. You would figure out like, oh, what are they writing to Santa? And that that's what they really want. You know, you could figure that out. And hopefully it's not a pony. Um, lately, in my, as my kids have grown older, things have changed a bit. In particular, that now that they have smartphones and they can write a note and then tag me in the note and I get updates almost daily of how this list of gifts changes or grows or or just uh, sometimes things are crossed out and maybe they were bought. Who knows? But it's very challenging because now I just know up to the moment and it just might actually lead to some disappointment as you move forward going, yeah, that's not going to happen. We, we're done. Um, but this question of what do you want for Christmas is probably something that, that a lot of us have asked. And, and maybe you haven't been asked that. But I'd love for you to be thinking about it. What is it that you want for Christmas? What is it that you are hoping for? What is it that maybe you're dreaming of that only maybe a miracle will, will give it to you? What is it that you want for Christmas? But also the question should be, as we're in this Advent season, is what did the people in the first Christmas want? What were they looking for? There's a Christmas song that we sing, that I heard the bells on Christmas Day, and a consistent line in that is that, there was a desire for peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And maybe that was on your Christmas list, you know, just world peace or something like that. But the second Sunday of Advent, as Ruth and family and Carl and family uh, lit this candle of peace, that's what we're reflecting on. What is peace? And is that what we want? Or maybe we want something different. So what do you think of when you think of peace? What is, comes to mind when you're thinking about peace? What is it that it looks like to you? For many of us, the idea of peace is the absence of conflict. You know, you're thinking of what would peace at Christmas look like? It would be Uncle Larry not bringing up politics at Christmas dinner. You know, peace is everybody gets along, nobody's fighting. That's what we call peace. And that's a noble desire. You know, the end of conflict is a noble thing, and we definitely, I think, should want that. But that's not all that peace is. Because part of the reality is that in our world, there is a lot of conflict. You know, maybe we're familiar with some of it. Maybe some of it is in our home. Maybe it's stuff we've experienced. Maybe we've caused some of that conflict. On a global scale, we know that there's major conflicts going around the world, like many of us are familiar with Israel and Palestine, Ukraine and Russia, but that's actually very limited. Reality is that right now, if you look at the map that's going to be on the screen, right now there are 27 semi-major or major wars and conflicts going on around the world. A major war is described as 10,000 people dead in a year. Semi-major or minor is less than 10,000, but more than 1,000. 27 different places 
And some of us, we might be familiar with some of those places. Like, obviously, we hear the news, the big ones. You know, you have Israel and Palestine. You have Ukraine and Russia. Some of us, maybe we have a family connection somewhere, so maybe we know about the gang wars in Haiti, or we know about uh, what might be going on in Myanmar. Chances are there's a whole bunch we don't know, like what's going on in northeast India or other places. And yeah, it would be a noble thing to want an absence of these conflicts. No more deaths. Needlessly. Absolutely. That is definitely something you should want for Christmas, and definitely something that we should be praying for. But peace is more than just that. Peace is so much more than just that. When we talk about peace, we might hold on to that idea, but if we want to get a closer glimpse of what peace could be for us, we have to look at the story of the first Christmas. We have to look at the story of the world of the first Christmas. Because in their world, there was a concept of peace as well. And it wasn't about the absence of conflict. It was actually something, to me, a little more deranged than that. The idea of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which was ushered in for about 200 years, was not an idea that there would be no more wars, but the idea was that you beat your enemies so much that they don't want to rebel against you again. You beat people down so much they have no desire to push against you. And so the Roman emperor, in particular Augustus Caesar, is the one who kind of ushered in this season of Roman peace, beat people down, took over places so much that they had no energy to fight back. And that was peace for them. So there was military rule. There was a world where people really couldn't say what they wanted to say because if they did, they'd be killed. And that was peace. It's not the absence of conflict. It's actually something much worse than the absence of conflict. But in the midst of that world, Isaiah prophesied that there'd be one who's born, who's called the Prince of Peace, who is coming. And that's the story of real peace. And so we're going to look at Matthew's Gospel and explore what it means for Jesus to be the Prince of Peace and how that changes things. So in Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18, says this. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So let's understand a bit of this this context here. So some of us are familiar. We know a little bit of the story. Maybe we know a lot of the story of Christmas, the whole idea of the virgin birth, which is central to the beliefs of Christianity, of who Jesus is. And so we have this understanding or knowledge of what this might mean. And so in this context, what was going on is that Mary and Joseph were actually already married. But it's different than what we think of with marriage. And they had kind of like a two-stage marriage. The first one was a betrothal, which is basically like what we would call our engagement, but it was actually the legal agreement to marriage. What would have happened, likely, would be Mary's dad would have given something to Joseph's dad and said, let's join families. Unfortunately, in that world, women didn't have the autonomy that they do today, and unfortunately, they were more often viewed as kind of like property. And so there was a trade going on. 
And Mary's dad would have said, I'm losing something of mine, so let's, let's do a trade here. And there would be some kind of financial trade that goes on. And these two families would end up being joined together through this betrothal, marriage. And then later on, there would be more of like the ceremonial marriage, the spiritual marriage, which usually ends up in a consummation of marriage, so a sexual union. And so scripturally, in the world of Jesus' time, this is what marriage looked like. You had this legal agreement, and then you had this spiritual ceremony that occurred. In some countries, it's still like that today. But in this time, in this world, first century world, so what's happened is they've had this legal agreement. There's been an exchange of goods. There's been this promise made that now Mary and Joseph are husband and wife. And in the midst of that, Mary gets pregnant. And what would be common practice in those days would be to kill Mary. To say she has been unfaithful. She should be dead. In fact, the text in this NIV version says that he was, Joseph was someone who was faithful to the law. In other translations, it would say Joseph was a righteous person. So he's someone who followed the instructions that God had given long ago, and as well as the cultural instructions, and would have understood that if Mary had gotten pregnant by someone else, that was punishable by death. But the text tells us he didn't want to disgrace her. So he wanted to do this quietly. Kind of go off, pretend like it never happened. That's what the text tells us. So even though he's someone who knows the rules very well, he didn't want to hurt her. He didn't think that was right. Whatever that reasoning might be, what we know about Joseph is he's a righteous person. He does the right things. And so the text is going to continue. It says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So in a dream, after he's made this decision, he's made this decision saying this is what's going to happen, but... He has a dream, and there's an angel. If you're familiar with Scripture, there's usually a pattern that happens when someone sees an angel. They're scared of the angel. Angels are terrifying in Scripture for some reason. We can get into that another time. But here's something different is said. The angel appears in a dream to Joseph. We have no reason to think it's any different than any other angel that appears through Scripture. And he says, don't be afraid to get married. I'm sure many men would have loved an angel to appear on their wedding day. Joseph's fear isn't of the angel, but of what is to come if this union is finally solidified, if they're fully married. They've gone through the two parts. And the angel says, don't be afraid. This is of God. You're going to have a son. Joseph, this righteous person, lives in a world where his wife, Mary, should be killed. Yet he chooses and says, no, I don't want that to happen. Let's just end this quietly. Maybe he would have gone off somewhere else, tried to start a new life, hope the same thing for her. And an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. And instead of being afraid of the angel, the angel says, don't be afraid to be married. This is God working in your life. 
None of that should make sense to Joseph. Probably didn't make sense to Joseph. But what does he do? It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And then he says he woke up and he did what the angel told him. He took uh, the Lord had commanded and he commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. So even though it made no sense, Joseph, the person who's righteous, who tries to do the right thing, who wanted good for Mary, chose to be faithful to what God asked him. I would imagine there was a lot of internal conflict that went on in Joseph's life in those moments. The internal conflicts of what are people going to say about me? What are people going to say about this baby? What are people going to say about Mary? Will I ever find a community that I can be in where nobody's going to be talking about us behind our back? Probably these conflicts were very real in his context, in his world, as they would be for ours. As they would be, unfortunately, still are for some people. Where we look at something and we associate certain shame to it. And so we have these internal conflicts of, like, what are people going to say? But Joseph, no matter what that conflict was, decided to be faithful to what God said. Go, take your wife. And the rest of the story is history. We know that through the story that as Jesus grows up, Joseph isn't always in the story. But he's in in this part. And the important thing that I think that gets told about Jesus in this passage is what he is to be called. He is to be called Emmanuel, God with us. In Joseph's time, he was living in this Pax Romana, in this Roman peace, where that if you were someone who opposed what was going on in the government, if you tried to talk about it and people got word that you were talking about it, you'd be taken out. You wouldn't exist. Joseph lived in a context where, even in his religious system, what he was about to do to stay married to someone who was pregnant and not with his child would be disgraceful and shameful, and he'd be an outcast in it. Within Joseph's world, things were not looking bright, but he chose to be faithful because the child that was to be born was called God with them, God with us. In Joseph's world, as he's living under this fake peace, he clung on to a hope of real peace. The idea of peace in Scripture goes much beyond the idea of the absence of conflict and definitely beyond the idea of Roman peace, which was basically oppression. And the idea of peace throughout Scripture is that of shalom. That's the Hebrew word. And shalom is used sometimes just as a simple greeting. Maybe if you have Jewish friends, they would use that with you. But shalom is much more than all those things. So shalom is an invitation to wholeness. Shalom is a concept that everything is made right. Not just that there's no more conflict, that there's no more fighting, whether that's an internal dialogue that Joseph's struggling with, whether it's the issues of feeling shame for decisions that were made, whether it's oppression from government or anything like that, but real peace, shalom, would bring wholeness to him, bring wholeness to us. And it's an idea of flourishing, 
of everything being made right. And so what the people were wanting in Joseph's time wasn't that peace from oppression. It wasn't even that absence of conflict. It was to be made whole, to flourish. And so what God did in the midst of that desire was said, I will be with you, Emmanuel, Jesus. So what God did in the midst of the reality of things not being the way they're supposed to be, the things being in this conflict, in this struggle, in this oppressive time, he steps into history in a person, in Jesus. And in that first celebration of what we call Christmas, it's the God who comes near and exists in that conflict, in that oppression. It's the God who is called the Prince of Peace. The idea of peace is much more than just no fighting at Christmas dinner. And it's much more than the absence of wars. And it definitely isn't oppression to the point where you can't do anything. The idea of peace is to be made whole. That's what Joseph would have wanted. He was a righteous person, someone who was a devout Jewish person in that time, in that context. So he would be someone who was praying for peace, praying for who Isaiah would call the Prince of Peace to come, the one who would bring that wholeness, who would bring that hope. And then Jesus is that one. And Joseph's told in a dream, your child is that peace. It's the God who's with you. You probably want peace. You probably want peace in some way, but what peace are you looking for? Are you looking for that absence of conflict, which is a noble thing? There's nothing wrong with that. That absence of tension in your marriage, that absence of tension in your household, that absence of tension at work. The idea that there would be no more wars or people dying for no reason. Those are noble things to desire, to pray for. Or maybe you want a different peace. Maybe your peace is a little more Pax Romana. You want to push your enemies down so much they can't fight against you. And that might sound extreme, but I, you know what? Some of us do that. We do that with sarcastic comments. We do that with putting up walls so that people don't get to know us. We do that by shaming people. We do that just by not loving people. A lot. So they feel beaten down. They feel like they can't say anything. And we do it in our homes. We do it in our workplaces. We do it in our churches. So maybe you're not looking for a lack of conflict, but you're looking just for that one-sided conflict so you win. And you might not do it on purpose, but something in you comes out. Or are you looking for what Jesus offers? The one who's called the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Wholeness. To flourish. Are you desiring that whatever might feel like it's missing, or maybe what's causing you to bring that oppression, or that, that sarcasm, or that hurt, or that wall, maybe whatever's bringing that, maybe you want that to be healed. Maybe you want that to be different. Maybe you want to feel wholeness. Not in a superficial sense that we sometimes experience where people tell you like, oh, if you just do this, you'll be happy. 
but in true contentment and gratitude that you are made in the image of God. And because you are made in the image of God, he has prepared something for you long ago. And as Paul tells us in Ephesians, that in Christ we are made new. We are God's masterpiece. And he's prepared good works for you long ago. And you just have to join him. Jesus said that he is our peace. Peace is a person. Whatever it is that you're pursuing, whatever it is that desired, maybe there, and I hope there is a desire for that wholeness, you will find it in the person of Jesus and only in the person of Jesus. As the passage that uh, Carl shared this morning, is his, where Jesus says in John 14, it's my peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. Jesus is our peace. In Jesus, we can find wholeness because in Jesus, we can find the forgiveness of our sins, meaning that disconnect we have from God, meaning that thing that separates us, that we know separates us, that we feel that tension. He is the God who is with us. He is the God who can make us whole. What is the peace that you're looking for? It's great to want no conflict. But maybe we can raise our standards a bit. Maybe we could desire to flourish, to be made whole. That's what Jesus offers us. The same Jesus who we celebrate at Christmas, who was born as a baby, is the same Jesus who says, I've come to give you life in all of its fullness. And that same Jesus who provides an opportunity to experience that fullness in him. He is our peace. And if you desire peace, you need to seek him. But it's up to you to seek him. Let's pray.